0: I'm Harrison Moore. I'm the uh, resident middle-aged millennial of the Cato Institute. Uh, I have thoughts on how to reach uh, young people if anyone's interested. But in all seriousness, I'm the vice president for development at Cato. And as the person who leads our fundraising efforts, I want to remind all of you again how much we appreciate your support and um, you know, Governor Sununu is going to speak later. He said something last night that kind of stuck with me. Whether you're an elected official or a business, stewarding other people's resources is probably the most important responsibility you have. So we really feel that every day and want to get the most out of what you give to us. And we'll keep doing that and being your voice in Washington. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Scott Lincecum, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, Cato's Director of General Economics and Trade. Scott Lincecum uh, is a recovering private practice lawyer, in fact, who uh, joined Cato in 2020. As his title suggests, he's leading our Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, as well as a portfolio of economics work. Really excited about that. He's gonna take a lot of our efforts to the a, ne- a new level because he is very well networked. In fact, he started at Cato in 1998 as a media relations assistant And I was in the same position in 2008, uh, 10 years later. So David told me to call Scott up, pick his brain, how to do my job. So he was really helpful. We talked for a while, but he said, "You know, I can't really tell you how to curate an email list, how to craft press releases for email, because back in my day, what we were using was a fax machine. And so I said, this is all great. This is really helpful, Scott, but what's a fax machine? (laughs) So I learned a lot more that day. Anyway, uh, Scott's a very important part of our team. Um, He has an op-ed coming up in the Wall Street Journal in a week or so, so look out for that. And he's really focused on pushing back against industrial policy that's coming from our friends on the right, ever more spending from our friends on the left. Great colleague, great scholar. Please help me welcome Scott Lincegum.
1: Thanks, Harrison. Um, I'm the resident Gen Xer here. Um, Always forget about us when we talk about young people. Today, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Wonderful weather. So nice. Um, Today, I'm going to talk a bit about supply chains. Now, in the olden days, when I would mention supply chains, everybody's eyes would glaze over. You know, there'd be a lot of snoozing in the audience. Now, of course, the phone never stops ringing. Then headlines never stop. I guess, uh, in a way, be careful what you wish for. terms of getting attention. Uh, But I think there's a lot that we can learn from the current supply chain mess that we're seeing out there almost every day when we look at what happened, why it happened, and again, the lessons we can draw from it. Now, um, it may sound silly, but a a bunch of our supply chain crisis was just the pandemic doing doing its thing. Uh, Major exporting and importing countries Uh, Unexpectedly shut down and reopened, then they shut down and reopened again, and they did it all on different schedules. And At the same time, you had abnormally high worldwide demand, fueled by monetary and fiscal stimulus, but also people being trapped in their houses and only buying furniture and computers. Um, economies then reopening, as I mentioned, retailer stockpile and increased consumer appetite for those goods. And that all ran headfirst into finite production and transportation capacity, lean inventory systems, labor shortages. Um, a lot of which were simply, again, the part of the pandemic. Throw in a few factory and port closures due to COVID outbreaks and other emergencies. Like freak ice storms in Texas, and you have a surefire recipe for um, supply chain chaos, and that's just what we got. Now, this intense stress on the system eventually resulted in lim- limited supplies, higher prices. And those problems chilled economic growth, along with uh, Democrats' economic agenda and their political prospects. So, the White House, of course, established a supply chain task force and a bottleneck czar to fix the situation. And they've been trying, racing, running around, to fix the ports and other players to ease up these bottlenecks. Now meanwhile, politicians of both parties have promised, as they do, easy protectionist fixes. Subsidies, tariffs, localization mandates, industrial policy, all of which will solve the problems we see on our store shelves today. But the reality is, there is no quick fix. Um, Though we now appear to be past peak problems, most companies expect supply chain hiccups to continue for most of the year. Now, why is that? Well, look, some of it is just time. It takes time to clear backlogs, to refresh inventories, expand ports, build new warehouses and ships, train workers, or make other capacity expansions, especially where paperwork-heavy federal procurement dollars are involved. And the calming and resetting of global demand won't happen overnight either. We have the Omicron variant to worry about now too. More mild, sure, but still it'll cause some problems in the coming months. But there are also two other things here going on worth emphasizing, one good, one bad, and both right in Cato's wheelhouse. Well, let's start with the bad news. Um, As I've written repeatedly, All sorts of US policies at the local, state, and federal level have intentionally diminished supply chain capacity, efficiency, flexibility, thus making it harder to ease those bottlenecks and to adapt to our post-COVID world. And they're making the supply chain crisis worse than it really ever needed to be. I'll give you some examples. Let's start at the ports. Well, longshoremen's unions on both US coasts have leveraged their political power to negotiate Contracts that inflate salaries, limit working hours, and job flexibility, and most importantly expressly prohibit efficiency in uh, expanding automation uh, that ports in Asia and Europe, by the way, adopted decades ago. A total of zero US ports are fully automated even though that technology has been around for quite a while. The Jones Act and the Foreign Dredge Act, something we talk about a lot at Cato, they require port dredging to use American-made ships. Well, that inflates costs and has deterred port expansion. So we have fewer berths, narrower gateways, and ports that can't handle the biggest, most efficient ships. Local zoning laws, especially in California, where our most important complex is out in Los Angeles. Well, they've prevented ports and other companies from quickly expanding container storage, causing containers to uh, stack up at the ports and making it difficult to clear them. As a result of these and other policies, I could go on for hours, not a single American port ranks among the top 50 in the world in terms of efficiency and productivity. Los Angeles Long Beach, the most important one in the country, ranks 330th, give or take, around three of 350 in the entire world. No wonder, then, that our ports have struggled to process record container volumes. The port trucks are waiting record times at the docks, and there's been only one major port terminal expansion in the United States since 2009 in Charleston, and it's stuck in a big labor dispute as well. So beyond the ports, though, we have bad policies infecting trucking and warehouse capacity. California. Again, zoning environmental regulations have discouraged warehouse construction near the ports, so it takes several years longer to build warehouse space in California than it does in other states like Texas near the port of Houston, for example. California environmental regulations have also supposedly pushed some port truckers out of the business by making their trucks instantly obsolete and illegal. The United States also has imposed tariffs in the middle of a shipping crisis On chassis, intermodal chassis are what trucks need to move containers from port to warehouse of 220% under our anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws that have no special check or safeguard for national security or public interest. Of course, those uh, provisions uh, are opposed by protectionist domestic interests. We also have for decades barred Mexican trucking companies, which have the largest and closest supply of potential trucks and drivers, from carrying freight within the United States, diminishing trucking capacity that we really re- need right now. We have a trucker shortage, as you know. Speaking of labor, immigration backlogs were down a couple million. Immigrant workers, because of the Trump administration, and then of course because of COVID. And those are especially important in the supply chain because immigrants work in places like warehouses and in uh, trucking and, and the rest. Finally, go back to the Jones Act. Well, it makes coastwise shipping, moving oranges from, say, uh, Florida to New York, uh, cost prohibitive, putting more cargo onto the highways, and trains. The next time you drive up I-95 and you're stuck in traffic, you can thank the Jones Act. So none of this is good for supply chains, and it leaves us at Cato with plenty of work to do. But I want to close with the good news. At the same time, supply chains, companies, consumers, have been adapting for two years now, making natural free market adjustments to ease these supply chain constraints. If you were listening to certain politicians, this is all because of them. President Biden's press secretary said that he saved Christmas. But in the real world, however, it was market participants companies, consumers, adapting in all sorts of ways, innovating through supply chain technology, new apps to track purchases, investing in warehouse space, investing in the production of high-demand goods like PPE, uh, using pre-existing industrial capacity, diversifying input suppliers, uh, switching to different ports, just simple things like that to make that supply chain crisis a little bit er easier. And in this good news, there's really a, a broader policy lesson. And President Biden didn't save Christmas. We all did. The system did. And there lies a, a Hayekian policy lesson for all of us. You know, those who think that supply chain problems can be solved by productionism, protectionism, protectionism and industrial policy really are on the wrong track. What we need are policies like the ones we advocate, enhancing dynamism and adjustment and flexibility, allowing the free market to do what the free market does so well, and that is to achieve mass prosperity. And so we will be continuing to focus on those types of policies at Cato, whether it is liberalizing trade and immigration restrictions, looking at state and local regulations that inhibit that natural and important economic dynamism and adjustment. And with that, I think uh, we'll be advocating for that and more in the years and beyond. And, And I, again, thank you for your support in allowing us to do so. So I have some time for questions if anybody. Yes. <laughs> there is there are always uh, bills introduced. Senator Mike Lee, for example, just had a, a really smart bill looking at ways that um, we could deregulate and, and at least reform the Jones Act um, to allow for um, at least again waivers to be issued in times of national crisis. But the reality is that this is a classic case of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Uh, shipbuilders are very politically powerful, uh, and they have a lot of politicians that that. That back them, and so um, we are working. We've worked with a lot of legislature, le- legislators to push these types of provisions, but it's certainly it's an uphill climb. Oh, oh, is oh you
0: okay? Never mind. Same question.
1: In terms of the infrastructure money that's coming, what yeah. is Cato's position on how that should be best spent? Uh, ports, or what is your? Oh. Well. Unfortunately, that infrastructure spending um, has a lot of the same uh, is subject to a lot of the same laws and regulations that have made our supply chain crisis w- worse. For example, buy American restrictions that inflate the costs of projects requiring American-made materials, particularly American-made steel, um, that also delay projects and bog them down in paperwork and start trade conflicts. Um, it also, there was no effort to reform the National Environmental Policy Act. NEPA reviews, again, slow down that process. So my view, and of course, you know, there's no standard Cato view, but my view is that uh, there, there may be a place for infrastructure spending. Um, we would prefer that probably to be at the state level, privately funded fees. But in classic Washington fashion, the very laws that are intended to fix these problems just further cement them into into the economy and that's that's where I think you know we, we very much oppose that
0: I, I'm just curious because I've never seen it but has there ever been a study comparing the shipping costs to Puerto Rico versus the US virgins which I understand are not subject yes. to the Jones Act?
1: Yes, there have, and they show immense cost differences. You're looking at two to three times as much to ship something to Puerto Rico um, than than to those places. Um, of course, you know quantifying that is always a difficult challenge because there are so many um, so many aspects of the Calculation, but in general, we see this um, in the real world all the time. I think that one of the best examples—not looking at Puerto Rico, because that's a very obvious example—but in the real world, you see, for example, that in the Northeast, uh, natural gas and heating oil don't come from Houston. We have energy coming out of our ears in Houston. They come from Russia or Trinidad and Tobago or elsewhere. Um, That is. Bizarre right, but it gives you an idea of just how costly the Jones Act uh, is um, and uh, Why uh, companies have to do these costly workarounds.
0: I Think many of us are thinking more State-specific rather than federal and I think a lot of people are identifying more with their states There's been a lot of that uh, as of late, so I'm curious. How does the state of Florida's ports stack up relative to the other ports in the nation, and is there any progress in improving them
1: because of this? Uh, Well, so the Florida ports are, I think nothing is like Los Angeles, Long Beach. Um, A combination of uh, labor issues, bad politics, and bad policy, along with geography, make LA, Long Beach, its kind of own animal. But uh, certainly the, you know, ports in Florida and along the East Coast tend to be a little better, but those ports still are governed by the same union contracts that discourage automation. So if you look at the only port in the United States that actually has miraculously automated, not fully, but mostly, the Port of Virginia, no backlogs there, um, an incredible difference. And, and I think that's, you know again, where you see, it's not only about union contracts, but you see a lot of those issues uh, uh, are are making the supply chain crisis worse and they're just embedded in in the system. Another area though I think that's equally important is warehouse construction. So you look at Houston, for example, where they have very permissive zoning regulations, warehouses are popping up almost overnight and Houston is starting to take on more and more cargo. I haven't heard about Florida doing that as well, but of course there's a a big geographic difference between uh, Florida coastal land and, and Houston.
0: You mentioned uh, northern states buying um, oil from Russia. Will they still be doing that if sanctions <laughs> go through?
1: I, I, I doubt that. No, but but they'll they'll certainly continue to be buying it from some foreign country. Trinidad and Tobago, like I said, does a lot of that as well. There are a lot of potential suppliers, um, but it's certainly not coming from from Houston, unless of course it's trucked up or railed up, which raises all sorts of uh, environmental and other uh, problems. Okay. Well, thank you again.